When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. By the time we get to 3 Nephi chapter 4, we have seen prophecy and time vindicate the prophets. We have seen polarization and preparation in the face of mounting opposition. We've seen division and unification and the advantages and disadvantages that go along with them. Now in chapter 4, we will see two leaders of the Gadianton robbers, one after the next, in their attempts to attack the people of God. And their ultimate approaches to that teach us some interesting principles. The first leader was Gideonhai, who we met in chapter 3. He ended up opting for an open battle against this gathered group of Nephites. He saw no other way. His successor, Zemnarihah, opted for siege warfare. And I think if you compare those two, it's fascinating. The open battle versus the siege. How does the adversary try to attack people of faith? There is open apostasy, and then there is more subtle inactivity. Some people fight against faith, while others simply dwindle in unbelief. Doesn't that seem to be what siege warfare is trying to do? Satan attacks us with transgression and temptation, but also with distraction. Sometimes he leads with stony ground in hopes that the sun will just scorch our plants, and other times he simply introduces thorns, weeds, so that your plant can stay. It will just have all of its strength pulled away into lesser endeavors. Again, open warfare versus a siege approach. Which one are you in more danger of succumbing to? Satan's going to try either one. Now for the open battle, jump ahead to verse 7. They did come up to battle, and behold, great and terrible was the day that they did come up to battle. That phrase should tip us off that this is symbolic of the second coming also. The last days are described as great and terrible or great and dreadful. Notice how they're dressed. They were girded about after the manner of robbers and they had a lambskin about their loins and they were dyed in blood and their heads were shorn and they had headplates upon them. Great and terrible was the appearance of the armies of Gideonhai because of that armor and because of their being dyed in blood. Talk about counterfeiting the cause of Christ. We will take the skin of the lamb and use it to cover our nakedness. We'll dye ourselves in blood, even while we deny that the blood of Christ, the lamb of God, can do anything to save us. We'll shave our heads, which often in Old Testament cultures was symbolic of contrition, of humility, of a new birth, like a baby with no hair. To have this head plate 
High priests wore a head plate that said holiness to the Lord across it. That was supposed to always be on their minds, protected by the armor of God. Again, in every aspect, the armies of the robbers were counterfeiters of the cause of Christ. It's only the righteous that have true coats of skins to cover their nakedness, who are truly dyed in the blood of the Lamb, whose contrition is sincere, for whom holiness truly is on the mind, those who legitimately wear the true armor of God. Now, in the face of this great and terrible sight, in verse 8, the armies of the Nephites, when they see this, they've fallen to the earth. They lift their cries to the Lord their God that he would spare them and deliver them out of the hands of their enemies. They're not afraid of Gideonhi to the point of begging them for mercy. Theirs is the fear of God and turning to him for help. Now, those two can look similar from the outside. So in verse 9, the armies of Gideonhi see this. They shout with a loud voice because of their joy. They thought the Nephites had fallen with fear because of the terror of their armies. But verse 10 clarifies that that was not the case. The Nephites didn't fear them. They feared their God and did supplicate him for protection. Therefore, when the armies of Gideonhi did rush upon them, they were prepared to meet them. Yea, in the strength of the Lord, they did receive them. Verses 11 through 15 describe this battle. Great and terrible comes up several times. The worst slaughter in Lehite history. But the Nephites won. By verse 14, Gideonhi is dead. And 15, the Nephites return to their places of security. The open battle approach of the Gideonhi robbers was unsuccessful. But never one to give up easily. What's the second option? Verse 17, they appoint a new leader whose name is Zemnarihah, and notice his approach in verse 16. There's some powerful phrases here. After going home to lick their wounds and get ready for the next attack, the armies of the Gadianton robbers came up on all sides to lay siege round about the people of Nephi. So we clearly see that this is their new strategy. And why did they opt for it? For they did suppose that if they should cut off the people of Nephi from their lands and should hem them in on every side, and if they should cut them off from all their outward privileges, that they could cause them to yield themselves up according to their wishes. Now that's a perfect description of siege warfare. Just surround them and then starve them out. Eventually, they're going to run out of food in there, run out of water, or I don't know, run out of stuff to do, and they're going to have to come out and then we can attack them. It's a kinder, gentler form of warfare. It's inactivity, not apostasy. It's dwindling in unbelief, not coming out in open rebellion. But I love the phrases that are used to describe it. Hemming them in, or my favorite, the last one, cutting them off from all their outward privileges. Doesn't that sound like the way some people attack members of the church? That, oh, you guys, your religion is so restrictive. You can't do anything. I've even seen shirts, that you, t-shirts you can buy on the internet that says, I can't, I'm Mormon. And you see what enemies are trying to play on, what they're trying to leverage against us? You're cut off from your outward privileges. Your church won't let you do anything. Come on out. Have some fun. And I think so often that's one of the things the adversary uses to try to coax us away from our covenants, to make us feel that we're trapped within this restrictive religion that won't let us do anything we want. Well, before we lament our loss of outward privileges, what really is on the outside of Zion's walls 
compared to what's on the inside. Look at verse 18. But behold, this was an advantage to the Nephites, for it was impossible for the robbers to lay siege sufficiently long to have any effect upon the Nephites because of their much provision which they had laid up in store. You see, back in verse 4, the Nephites had reserved for themselves provisions that they might subsist for the space of seven years, in the which time they did hope to destroy the robbers from off the face of the land. This was no mere 72-hour kit. This wasn't even just a year's supply of food. Seven years of plenty on the in, in hopes that eventually seven years of famine on the out would lead to some changes in what they were up against. In other words, when the Gadianton robbers were taunting them, saying, we've got all the good stuff out here, you're cut off from your outward privileges, the Nephites could just smile and say, actually, we have everything we need right here. Remember, that was the wisdom of King Hezekiah in the Old Testament, back in the days of Isaiah, when he realized, if the Assyrians come and attack, I hope we'll be safe behind our city walls, but we do have one problem. There's no water source within. So what are we going to do? And what Hezekiah decided was there is a spring outside the walls of the city. If we can dig a tunnel under the walls and connect that spring to the lowest elevation part within the walls, then the water can flow underground, under our walls, and we will have a water source within. The Jews were famous for digging cisterns in their places of refuge so that they could fill them up with water and be able to survive sieges. Well, here the Nephites have seven years' worth. I sometimes picture Lehi's dream superimposed over this kind of, of battle strategy. As if the great and spacious building were spreading and starting to surround the tree of life on all sides. Do you kind of get that sense sometimes? Do you ever feel like the world is laying siege to the kingdom of God? There's no way of escaping, nowhere to retreat to? Well, I picture then those at the tree taking that iron rod and refashioning it to circle. It is God's word that will separate the righteous from the wicked. It is God's word that will keep deception at bay. And within that circle, within the confines of covenant, what do we have? Everything we need. The tree of life is an everlasting food source with fruit that is the most delicious thing that you could possibly partake of. The dream also suggests that the tree of life was accompanied with a fountain of living water. So we've got a water source too. No need to dig a tunnel like Hezekiah did. But if we do take Hezekiah's initiative and just make sure that there are sources of the bread of life and living water, the fruit of the tree right here, then be my guest. Cut me off from outward privileges. You don't have anything out there that I need. All my needs are met right in here within the confines of covenant. In fact, it's even better than that because at the beginning of this chapter, when it describes the Nephites all coming together and, and amassing that seven-year stockpile, it describes almost, almost a scorched earth policy outside. We're going to have everything on the inside and make sure there's nothing on the out. In verse 2, there's no wild beasts or game in the lands that the Nephites deserted, so there's no game for the robbers. In verse 3, the robbers could not exist, save it were in the wilderness, for the want of food, for the Nephites had left their lands desolate. End of verse 5, 
Gideonhai found that it was expedient that he should go up to battle against the Nephites, for there was no way that they could subsist, save it were to plunder and rob and murder. You see, even Gideonhai had preferred the siege approach initially. The reason he'd shifted to a flat-out open battle plan was because they were starving to death. Which again shows why his false promises of, join us and we won't prey upon you, you'll be brothers and equal with us. No, you got to have somebody to prey upon. We are Gadianton robbers after all, not Gadianton workers or agriculturists or hunter-gatherers. No, we're plunderers, that's it. You see the irony here? So that in reality, when Zemnariah is taunting them saying, you're cut off from your outward privileges, the Nephites could look out there and say, wait, wait, then who's the one starving to death? See verse 19, because of the scantiness of provisions among the robbers, they were the ones that were about to perish with hunger. Who's starving out whom? You see the irony of the army that's laying siege is the one that's starving to death, whereas the ones that are trapped, cut off from outward privileges, have all that they need. Reminds me of the story in Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas are in prison and the jailer is on the right side of the bars, right? Until that night when the prison walls crumble to set the prisoners free and the soldier realizes, I'm going to be killed because of this jailbreak that I couldn't stop. And through the dust and rubble, he hears the voice of his captives, Paul and Silas, say, don't do yourself any harm. You see, he was about to commit suicide, knowing that that would be what he would face by his superiors anyway. But they say, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And you can picture the jailer scratching his head going, you guys are the dumbest prisoners I've ever met. Why didn't you escape when the walls fell? And you can picture Paul saying to him, because we were never the ones imprisoned to begin with. We were on the right side of the bars. We know the truth, and the truth is what sets us free. You're the one trapped in your own ignorance but we can let you out. And they did. They preached the gospel to him that night, and he and his whole family were baptized. I had a student years ago, seminary student, fun kid, that used to say, you know, I used to think the church was so restrictive until I realized that when I go to the zoo, I am grateful for the bars. Understand what he meant by that? We're not on the wrong side of the bars when we're at the zoo. We're free. It's the dangers that are trapped. The righteous here, gathered together from Zarahemla to Bountiful, understood that. We have everything we need within the walls of Zion. These are inward privileges. Those on the outside are the ones starving for the fruit of the tree of life. I won't come out, but I'd love for you to come in. Now from 21 to 27 in this chapter, the robbers withdraw from the siege. They go in search of greener pastures, which then allows the army of Gidgadoni to march out and cut them off in their, in their retreat. They end up surrounding them. Again, interesting reversal here. You were the ones surrounding us. Well, now we're the ones surrounding you. And as a result, many thousands of them become prisoners of war. Others are slain. In verse 28, Zemnarihah is taken and executed. Specifically, he is hanged upon a tree until he is dead. And when they had hanged him until he was dead, they did fell the tree to the earth. And then they cry with a loud voice, saying in verse 29, 
May the Lord preserve his people in righteousness and in holiness of heart, that they may cause to be felled to the earth all who shall seek to slay them because of power and secret combinations, even as this man hath been felled to the earth. This is what is described as a simile curse. To make some kind of a simile, a metaphor, a figurative expression, cut down the tree, just like God will cut down anyone who fights against him. I also wonder if there's another level of symbolism here, because they do tie it more closely to the Lord in verse 30 and 31 and 32. They did rejoice and cry again with one voice, saying, May the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, that's Jesus Christ, Jehovah, protect this people in righteousness, so long as they shall call in the name of their God for protection. And then they break forth all as one, there's unity again, in singing and praising their God for the great thing which he had done for them, in preserving them from falling into the hands of their enemies. They cry, Hosanna to the Most High God. They cry, Blessed be the name of the Lord God Almighty, the Most High God. They recognize the strength of the Lord and they rejoice in it. You see, they had placed their faith in someone else that would someday be hanged upon a tree. And yet his tree, the cross, would stand forever as a symbol of his sacrifice, as opposed to this tree that was leveled to the ground along with the one that was hanged upon it for trying to pull this people away from the true Savior, the crucified Christ. You see, there was something in ancient Israelite culture that had a concern about being hanged at all. Deuteronomy chapter 21, speaking of criminals that are condemned to hanging, the law states, His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God. So you can't leave them on the tree. You've got to bury him so that the land be not defiled. Well, here they are even taking it up a notch. Not just take him off the tree, but take down the tree itself. The land will not be defiled by this wickedness. Paul drew upon that in Galatians when he says that Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So Paul takes that law from Deuteronomy and applies it to Jesus, that Jesus was cursed for having hung upon a tree, but he took that curse and turned it into a blessing for all, his death leading to universal life. Again, I wonder if there's just an added element of symbolism here, that we will cut down the tree of Zemnarihah, leader of those who had counterfeited the cause of Christ, so that the only tree left standing is the one that a cursed Jesus made holy through his sacrifice there. Chapter ends in verse 33. Their hearts were swollen with joy unto the gushing out of many tears. Interesting language in the aftermath of a massive battle filled with swollen muscles and the gushing out of blood. But again, a beautiful reversal. Hearts swollen with joy. Eyes gushing tears because of the great goodness of God in delivering them out of the hands of their enemies. They knew that it wasn't their own swords and strength. It was because of their repentance and their humility that they had been delivered from an everlasting destruction. Even that clarifies that they knew who the real enemy was. Zemnarihah could only threaten them with temporal destruction. 
It's the adversary that threatens us with everlasting destruction. And it's the Lord that delivers us from that. And with that, we go to chapter 5. I love how it begins. In verse 1, There was not a living soul among all the people of the Nephites who did doubt in the least the words of all the holy prophets who had spoken. For they knew it must needs be that they must be fulfilled. You compare that to the way chapter 3 began? Forgetting old signs, taking for granted current signs, denying the possibility of future signs, doubt running rampant across the land. Well, by chapter 5, no doubt, not in the least. They all know that God vindicates the prophets. Verse 2, they knew it must be expedient that Christ had come. Amazing, they can finally use the past tense there. And they knew it because of the many signs which had been given according to the words of the prophets. And because of the things which had come to pass already, that's Revelation past, they knew that it must needs be that all things should come to pass according to that which had been spoken. That's Revelation future. Again, clearly recognizing what occupies shelf number one is what gives you hope and faith in the presence of shelf number three. Verse three, therefore. Now that's a great conjunction. Therefore means consequently, as a result. Because of what I just said before, this is why what I'm about to say hereafter applies. So because they knew, because doubt had been banished and faith reaffirmed, they did forsake all their sins and their abominations and their whoredoms and did serve God with all diligence day and night. You see that? Changed beliefs in verse 1 and 2 therefore changed behaviors, verse 3. And the changed behavior was twofold. Not only did they forsake their sins and abominations, that's repenting of their sins of commission, but they also began to serve God with all diligence day and night. That's repenting of their sins of omission. That takes us back to King Benjamin, right? We have no more disposition to do evil, no more sins of commission, but to do good continually, no more sins of omission. Eliminate the negative, that's justification, and then add the positive, that's sanctification. And then in verse 4, notice what they do with their POWs. They cast their prisoners into prison and did cause the word of God to be preached unto them. It's like the earlier Lamanite plan. We're going to hunt them down to destroy them, and once we found them, we're going to preach the gospel to them. That was the philosophy of the sons of Mosiah. We're going to go into Lamanite territory and preach the gospel to change them. That was the philosophy of Alma in trying to reclaim the apostate Zoramites. The word was mightier than the sword, he knew. Here they do likewise. They did cause the word of God to be preached unto them, and as many as would repent of their sins and enter into a covenant that they would murder no more were set at liberty. If accepting the word of God, so faith, and then repentance, and then covenanting. We're starting to see the doctrine of Christ unfold. If that led to liberty, and it does in our spiritual condition just like it did for them in their physical, that seems the best way to go. Incredibly, there were some that didn't choose that. Talk about obstinance, stubbornness, willful rebellion. In verse 5, as many as there were who did not enter into a covenant, who did still continue to have their secret murders in their hearts, key target for the adversary, yea, as many as were found breathing out threatenings against their brethren, were condemned and punished according to the law. 
anything but a broken heart and contrite spirit. So whether it was by converting them or condemning them, preaching to the one group and punishing the other, thus they did put an end to all those wicked and secret and abominable combinations. Now you can kind of pause the history right then. And that's exactly what Mormon does. In 7, he starts talking about the passage of time, which then leads him to talk about his role as a historian. I'm so glad that it took him in that direction. Because kind of like we saw in Helaman 12, where he's so fed up with the pride cycle that he just turns to the camera and says, and thus we see. And it takes a whole chapter of interrupting the narrative. Here he does it similarly, but much more personally. From 7 to the end of the chapter, we get a glimpse of the narrator here, the historian, prophet, Mormon. Years are passing in verse 7. Verse 8, there had many things transpired which, in the eyes of some, would be great and marvelous. I just can't write them all down. Interesting insight into history. Some people have the eyes to see in history great and marvelous principles things that jump off the page to apply to our own circumstance. No wonder Mormon would so often say, thus we see, because he's using the eyes, eyes that some people share in seeing great and marvelous truths played out on the pages of the past. Later in that verse, he admits, this book cannot contain even a hundredth part of what was done, which lets us know that everything contained in the Book of Mormon is here at the expense of 99 other things that could have been included. I hope we approach the scriptures with that perspective. It's here for a reason. I really do think it's worth diving deep in every verse, knowing the opportunity cost of that passage. May we value the percent, the tiny fraction that we actually have. In verse 11, he says, I do make the record on plates which I have made with mine own hands. Nephi said the same thing way back in chapter 1 of 1 Nephi. And I love that as applied to my scriptures as well. My markings, my insights, the things I've written in the margin, the things that have been transferred from this set of plates to the fleshy tables of my heart. There's not another set of scriptures on earth quite like this one for me. And the same is true of your set of scriptures, once you have made them with your own hands. In verse 12, he gets more personal. Behold, I am called Mormon, being called after the land of Mormon, the land in which Alma did establish the church among the people. Yea, the first church which was established among them after their transgression. Remember back in Mosiah chapter 18 when it talks about the waters of Mormon, the forest of Mormon, the land of Mormon. You can picture Mormon getting a little carried away with himself. I love this name. But what does he love about it? The reminder of all that that name entails. If Nephi and Lehi, sons of Helaman, were given names to help them remember those people, it seems that Mormon was given this name to remember that place. This was a name signifying new beginnings and fresh starts of repenting and covenant-making and caring for one another, and coming unto Christ. That's what that place was. That's who this person is. Verse 13, he knows it, and he's not afraid to declare it. Behold, so look, fix your eye on this. See me poking through the page here. 
I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's because of him that I do what I do. I have been called of him to declare his word among his people that they might have everlasting life. You see the pronouns there? Him, his, his. My life, my calling, my work, my glory is about him and his word and his people. Such a beautiful description of the two great commandments. The first, looking upward, loving God with all his heart, might, mind, and strength. I'm a disciple of Christ. And the second, like unto it, looking horizontally, loving neighbor as self, declaring God's word to his people because he wanted them to have everlasting life. Mormon's identity was an expression of the two great commandments. I love the thought of taking up the cross daily in terms of those two great commandments. Fixing the vertical post down into gospel ground, first thing when we get up in the morning. Daily devotion to cement our love of God. And with that in place, we have something for the horizontal component to rest upon. Having connected with God, I can now connect with others and I have something to offer them. That is taking up the cross, vertical and horizontal, daily. And that is Mormon. In 14, another expression of the two great commandments. It hath become expedient that I, according to the will of God, that's the vertical, that the prayers of those who have gone hence, who were the holy ones, that's the horizontal, should be fulfilled according to their faith. That's why I make a record of these things which have been done. This is like Enos's prayer. As he pled with the Lord, please, if my people are destroyed and the Lamanites survive, please somehow preserve these records so that our voices can rise from the dust and call them back home to God. Mormon would have known all of this. Mormon read all these records as he abridged things. He read so much more. To see himself, his mission, his life's work in the context of what he's studying, I am doing the will of God, and I am answering the prayers of others. We don't have to be a prophet historian to do that. In whatever aspect of your life, professionally, educationally, personally, are we doing God's will, and are we answering people's prayers? When we can answer those questions positively, our work does become our glory. It becomes God's glory, and he wants to be a part of it. In 15, he admits that this is just a small record that he's offering us, and yet not too small to make a huge difference in the world. In verse 16, he draws that record from the accounts which have been given before. And, verse 17, then he includes a record of his own things, the things he's seen with his own eyes. I hope that we see our lives as a continuation of scriptural history. Moroni expects us to do the same. Remember that great promise in chapter 10, he says, think about the mercies of God all the way from Adam up until the time that you read these things. You're a part of scriptural history too. Mormon's bringing this all together. In verse 18, he includes his testimony. I know the record which I make to be a just and true record, even though there are many things which, according to our language, we're not able to write. I can't include everything, but what I do include is true. The scriptures can't be all-inclusive, but boy, they are all-inspired. Verse 20, getting even more personal, 
He says, I am Mormon and a pure descendant of Lehi. I have reason to bless my God and my Savior, Jesus Christ, that he brought our fathers out of the land of Jerusalem. And no one knew it, save it were himself and those whom he brought out of that land. And that he hath given me and my people so much knowledge unto the salvation of our souls. Now for that verse and the rest of this chapter to make sense, we have to understand what it was like to be a pure descendant of Lehi. Better yet, to know what it was like to be Lehi and his immediate family. Because theirs was an experience of being scattered. We keep talking about, yeah, we get to go to a promised land. But for a Jewish family living in Jerusalem, they would have thought, a promised land? We're in the promised land. The only promised land that the seed of Abraham was ever given. The Book of Mormon is so full of the scattering of Israel because the people whose story it contains were scattered themselves, especially early on with Lehi and Nephi and Jacob. The scattering is so prevalent in their writings. And the gathering was something that they put all their hopes on. Please don't forget us here, Heavenly Father. Well, that's what Mormon is seeing from his historical vantage point. A thousand years after that initial Lehite scattering, he can say, thank you, God. You knew what you were doing. I bless you, Father, and I bless you, Savior. Thank you for bringing our fathers out of the land of Jerusalem. Being scattered was the most traumatic experience that first family experienced. And now, with the passage of time, Mormon sees it as the blessing that it was meant to be. He has received knowledge to the salvation of his soul. Verse 21, you still sense that scattering gathering. Surely he hath blessed the house of Jacob and hath been merciful unto the seed of Joseph. Joseph's seed. This tribe that the branch grew over the wall came here to the American continent and flourished. 22, as long as they've kept his commandments, that flourishing took place. They've prospered according to his word. 23, yea, and surely shall he again bring a remnant of the seed of Joseph to the knowledge of the Lord their God. You see, Mormon was witnessing the destruction of that remnant, but he knew it would someday return to the knowledge of the Lord through the book that he was compiling. Verse 24, 5, and 6 then concludes this chapter with some of the strongest covenant language you'll find anywhere in Scripture. It's bookended by the strongest oath language possible. You know how sometimes we try to strengthen our promises by saying things like, I swear, or cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye? That's kind of brutal when you think about it. It's like, I'll even take pain and put it on the altar to say, this is how strongly I feel about what I'm saying. I'll risk my eye on it. I'll risk my life on it. Or in this case, I'll risk the existence of God over this promise. Because he starts 24 and he ends 26 with this language, as surely as the Lord liveth. That's the first part. And the last part, yea, as the Lord liveth, so shall it be. Amen. Again, book ending. I swear on God's life that this is true. And what's the truth he's swearing? Back to 24, as surely as the Lord liveth, will he gather in from the four quarters of the earth all the remnant of the seed of Jacob who are scattered abroad upon all the face of the earth. 
That's the Nephite's grand overarching concern from 1st Nephi through Moroni. You have sent us away. Will you please bring us back? You see why President Nelson is so emphatic that the greatest cause we can be involved in in our day is the gathering of scattered Israel? God swore on it. His prophets said the same, and time will vindicate the prophets as we assure that this prophecy is fulfilled. Verse 25, the word covenant or one of its forms appears five times in one verse. As he hath covenanted with all the house of Jacob, even so shall the covenant wherewith he hath covenanted with the house of Jacob be fulfilled in his own due time unto the restoring all the house of Jacob unto the knowledge of the covenant that he hath covenanted with them. And that knowledge will come through the Book of Mormon. That's the title page. To make known unto the posterity of Lehi the covenants that God has made with their fathers, that they are not cast off forever. If anyone has the right to declare that, from his vantage point in history and his mastery of the thousand years that went before him, it's Mormon. You will be restored to the knowledge of that covenant. And then 26, then shall they know their Redeemer, who is Jesus Christ, the great gatherer of Israel, the Son of God. And then shall they be gathered in from the four quarters of the earth unto their own lands, from whence they have been dispersed. Yea, as the Lord liveth, so shall it be. Amen. There is no greater cause that we can be engaged in than the gathering of Israel on both sides of the veil. God promised all of his children, and this goes so far beyond the tribes of Israel, we were all in God's presence. We were all home, and then were scattered to a fallen earth to learn how to return are we gathering each other? God promised he would make it possible. And his faith is banking on our work to make sure that happens. Now, after that beautiful aside, Mormon getting caught up in this moment and staring into the camera and speaking to us, he gets back to the book. And in chapter 6, he resumes, sadly, the pride cycle, which he's seen over and over and over again. After having gathered to be able to endure the attacks and the siege warfare of their enemies. Chapter 6, verse 1, the people of the Nephites did all return to their own lands. They all go home. In verse 2, they bring all their stuff back with them. And in verse 3, they grant unto those robbers who had entered into a covenant to keep the peace of the land, who were desirous to remain Lamanites, they granted them lands according to their numbers. Now, that's fascinating to me. You'd think, okay, they preached the gospel to them in prison, so all those Gadianton robbers repented and converted and became faithful Nephites. Well, no. Some of them simply said, I do not want to believe what you believe, but I will promise not to fight anymore. And the Nephites honored that. There is this sense of, we will honor your religious freedom as long as you honor ours. This is the 11th article of faith. We're claiming the privilege of worshiping Almighty God. We'll fight for that, as you've seen. But if you want to worship in some other way, or not worship at all, how, where, what you may, or whatever else, we'll honor that. You can have that privilege too. If you want to remain Lamanites, that, that to me is just fascinating. And we do live in a time where many people do just want to remain Lamanites. I don't want to be a part of any religious community. Well, can we at least peacefully coexist? We've got to learn to. 
But then you see a trigger word in verse 4 pop up. They began again to prosper. Now we should think, oh great, good news. You're prospering, you're waxing great. Unfortunately, we know what prosperity tends to lead to, right? We've been trained for that. And just in case we missed it, with a certain air of foreboding, Mormon continues in verse 5, there was nothing in all the land to hinder the people from prospering continually, except they should fall into transgression. Well, now you can read the writing on the wall. You could choose to stay in the prosperity stage of the pride cycle. Nothing can automatically pull you in the adversary's direction unless you fall in that way. And it seems like they might actually stay on the Lord's side for a while. Verse 6, there's great peace in the land. Verse 7, they build many cities anew and repair many old cities. And in verse 8, they cast up highways and roads to connect everything. I love those elements. You build the new, there's spiritual growth. You repair the old, there's repentance. You throw up highways and roads to connect everyone. That's unity. See how good things could be? Unending prosperity if progress and repentance and oneness prevail among God's people? Well, it lasted for a verse and a half. In verse 10, then there began to be some disputings among the people. Some were lifted up unto pride and boasting. There's great riches. There's great persecutions. We saw it coming, didn't we? Verse 11, there were many merchants in the land, many lawyers and many officers. Well, no big deal. Those can all be good, but they might not be. Because merchants, there's the economics. Lawyers, there's litigation. Officers, there's authority. And money and law and power can all point in either direction. Verse 12, the people began to be distinguished by ranks. There goes the unity that was a source of advantage to the Nephites, the oneness that brings the blessings of God. Notice they were distinguished according to their riches. That's the common version, but keep going. And their chances for learning. Yea, some were ignorant because of their poverty, and others did receive great learning because of their riches. It's interesting that here we see the interrelatedness of economics and education. That sometimes inequalities can be systemic. And that is largely based on what kind of an education is available to you. Some had privileges of wealth and others had privileges of education. And those were not equal privileges. This is not just what kind of school can I get into for college, but what kind of school am I forced into in elementary school or high school. Notice they weren't differentiated because of their intelligence, rather their chances for learning. And what kind of opportunities have I been given through no effort of my own versus other opportunities from which others have been withheld? For some, the question of pride is, how much do you make? For others, the question of pride is, where'd you go to school? And yet those questions are divisive. They are not unifying. And when certain amount of riches leads to a certain amount of education, which then perpetuates the cycle, leading on to greater riches and greater education, no wonder that is something that is hard to break into. Now, as we've seen before in other rounds of the pride cycle, it doesn't have to be an automatic. Verse 13, some were lifted up in pride, but not all, some. Others were exceedingly humble. 
Some returned railing for railing, while others would receive railing and persecution and all manner of afflictions, and would not turn and revile again, but were humble and penitent before God. Now, we're not just talking about non-members versus members, or the righteous versus the wicked, because notice at the middle of 13, some did return railing for railing, and others just took it and didn't return it at all. Wait a minute. So both groups, we're talking about the church, it seems. Both groups were railed at. It's just a matter of how do I respond to it? The prideful, even within the church, railed back. The humble turned the other cheek. No wonder verse 14 doesn't just talk about a great inequality in all the land, but specifically something going on in the church. The church began to be broken up. Yea, the church was broken up in all the land except one little enclave of true righteousness. A few of the Lamanites who were converted unto the true faith. They would not depart from it. They were firm. They were steadfast. They were immovable. They were unshaken, I would add. They were willing with all diligence to keep the commandments of the Lord. Oh, I just want to be part of that group. They remain faithful in spite of the inequality and iniquity all around them. Where others, even others in the church, were falling away. And here's why. Verse 15. The cause of this iniquity of the people was this. Satan had great power unto the stirring up of the people to do all manner of iniquity, puffing them up with pride, tempting them to seek for power and authority and riches and the vain things of the world. No wonder there were so many merchants and lawyers and officers. That's what they wanted. Is that what we want? Is the adversary puffing us up too? If he's pulling us back up the fourth article of faith and wanting to replace the object of our faith, is it power? Is it authority? Is it riches? Is it the vain things of the world? Because if it is, then our behavior will follow and our commitment will follow that and our confirmation will follow that too. That's how Satan, as it says in 16, leads away the hearts of the people to do all manner of iniquity. That peace they enjoyed didn't last very long. In verse 17, the people had been delivered up for the space of a long time to be carried about by the temptations of the devil, whithersoever he desired to carry them, to do whatsoever iniquity he desired they should. Talk about an abdication of agency. It's like we saw at the beginning of the lesson with Doctrine and Covenants 1, that the devil has power over his own dominion. He's leading them by the leash. He can get them to do whatever he wants. And worst of all, in verse 18, they knew it. They did not sin ignorantly. They knew the will of God concerning them. It had been taught unto them. Therefore, they did willfully rebel against God. Now, again, from the pride cycle, if the bad news is that pride leads to destruction, the good news is that even in that destruction phase, the Lord never gives up on us. He calls us to turn and return. Just come to his side of the cycle and your humility and repentance will lead you back into prosperity. So in verse 20, there began to be men inspired from heaven, sent forth, standing among the people in all the land, preaching, testifying boldly of the sins and iniquities of the people, that is crying repentance, testifying unto them concerning the redemption which the Lord would make for his people, or in other words, the resurrection of Christ, and they did testify boldly of his death, there's crucifixion, and sufferings, there's atonement. Gethsemane, Calvary, empty tomb, it's all there. Those are the sites of our salvation, and those are the objects of preaching for these men inspired from heaven. 
from 21 through 27, we see that there is great opposition to that. Again, we're at this point where we're now pulled in both directions. We're at the destruction phase. And Satan wants to keep us there and deepen that destruction. And the Lord wants to turn it to turn us for our good. The opposition here focuses on the efforts of chief judges, high priests, lawyers. Those are all rival authorities to the prophets of God. Who will we listen to? Whose authority will we recognize? These evil leaders end up using whatever influence they can to condemn the prophets, to put them to death, both secretly and illegally, before it can come to the attention of other authorities that would stand in their way. They have enough connections, enough wealth and influence, enough persuasive power to make sure they always get off the hook. So by the time you get to verse 28, these wicked leaders with their friends and kindreds, they enter into a covenant one with another, Yea, even into that covenant which was given by them of old, which covenant was given and administered by the devil, to combine against all righteousness. That's where we get the word secret, combinations. Verse 29, they did combine against the people of the Lord. They entered into a covenant to destroy them. Verse 30, they set at defiance the law and the rights of their country, and they covenant one with another to destroy the governor. And to establish a king instead. No more liberty, no more freedom, but subjection to kings not of their choosing. Over and over we see the Gadianton robbers rise and then are overcome only to see them resurrect later on. And in the wake of this resurrection of wickedness, things only get worse. In chapter 7, Nephite society collapses. It sounds a lot like the beginning of the book of Helaman. There is a chief judge murdered, just like happened back then. But even worse, by the end of verse 2, they destroy the government of the land. And all they're left with, their form of social control, was by dividing into tribes, according to your family, your kindred, your friends, appointing your own leader, and thus they became tribes and leaders of tribes. Think about it this way. Disorder and division sin and separation, anything to stop us from being one and therefore stop us from being gods. Even this idea of tribalism, not wanting to be a larger society that has its differences but learn to get along. No. Let's get rid of any overarching authority. Let's destroy the government of the land and then subdivide along lines of family or kindred or friends or common interests or shared identity at the risk of using words with way too many syllables. This is where anti-authoritarianism combines with individualism to create the atomization of society. In other words, I don't want anyone in charge, anti-authoritarianism. I want to do things my own way, according to my tribe. There's the ultra-individualism leading to the atomization, the separation. There's no cohesion. There's nothing that unifies us as a culture or society. Now, please don't get me wrong. I am a huge fan of diversity. But diversity has to be balanced with unity. I recognize that many groups have felt so stifled by culture or society that is too monochromatic. But in the face of unity with no diversity, they have corrected and overcorrected to diversity with no unity. And we have to be able to prove these contraries. We have to be able to find some kind of balance. Tribalism is not the answer. 
And that's true even if your tribe happens to be the church. We have to learn to be better neighbors and get along with people who choose to remain Lamanites, whatever form that might take. Now in verse 5, there's still no wars. As yet, there's some more foreshadowing. But all this iniquity had come upon the people because they did yield themselves unto the power of Satan. They just yielded. They just gave in. They surrendered. They submitted. In verse 6, the government can't regulate anything. Secret combinations are running the show. They murder the prophets. Again, eliminate rival authorities. So that by the time you get to verse 7, they caused a great contention in the land and so much that the more righteous part of the people had nearly all become wicked. Yea, there were but few righteous men among them. All the more reason for us to be part of that faithful few. Verse 8, it only been six years since we had better days. And the more part of the people had turned from their righteousness. And then how's this for a graphic image? Like the dog to his vomit, or like the sow to her wallowing in the mire. Verse 9 through 13 describes the growth of these secret combinations. They appoint a king among them whose name is Jacob. Now Jacob's group, kind of this core band of Gadianton robbers, they are outnumbered by all the tribes that surround them. And though these tribes can't stand each other, they all agree that they hate Jacob's group even more. So Jacob ends up gathering his group, fleeing to the north with all these promises that, oh, don't worry, eventually we'll grow. There'll be all kinds of dissenters from those other groups, and they'll come and join us as well. So with the worst of the worst kind of separated, and all these little factions remaining, a kind of precarious peace reigns for a time. In verse 14, society is still heavily split, deep divisions between these tribes. But at least they had come to an agreement that they wouldn't go to war one with another. There was no unified legal system, no unified government. Everybody did their own thing. Honestly, this reminds me a lot of what was said about the period of the judges in the Old Testament, which again is pride cycle central. But that period was defined as, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And again, that describes the individualism and anti-authoritarianism that reigns today. Everyone just, you do you. Do your own thing. Nothing really to bind us together in one. We don't have to care for each other. We don't even have to really associate with people that we don't want to associate with. But let's at least keep some kind of precarious peace. As it says at the end of 14, In some degree they had peace in the land. Nevertheless, their hearts were turned from the Lord their God which suggests that that peace cannot last. And they stoned the prophets and cast them out from among them. That's another thing they agreed on. We don't want the worst of the wicked, get rid of Jacob and his group, but we don't want the righteous around either. So we've got to eliminate the prophets. But prophets can't be stopped, right? We learned that from Samuel last week. So from verse 15 to the end of this chapter, Nephi comes back onto the scene and he is unstoppable. He continues to minister in righteousness. Remember President Irene's promise that the world will never get so wicked that we cannot choose righteousness. Well, Nephi is presenting them with that choice. He's personifying it, in fact. Verse 15, Nephi had been visited by angels and also the voice of the Lord. Therefore, having seen angels, being eyewitness, having had power given unto him that he might know concerning the mystery of Christ. This is such a beautiful reminder of Jacob versus Sherem. 
what's happening to those two on an individual level is now happening between the righteous remnant and the Gadianton robbers on a more macro level. What kept Jacob unshaken, his word? I'd had angels minister unto me. I'd heard the voice of God speaking unto me in very word from time to time. Wherefore, I could not be shaken. Same with Nephi. Immovable in the face of cultural currents. In verse 16, he was grieved for the hardness of their hearts. We started this lesson back in chapter 1 with his sorrow. We see it now again. Grieved from the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds. Again, jamming the Lord's frequencies. He went forth among them in that same year and began to testify boldly repentance and remission of sins through faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to reboot the fourth article of faith and get the right five words in place. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then repentance and remission of sins, covenant and confirmation will follow. 17, he did minister many things unto them. All of them can't be written and a part of them would not suffice. So I'm not going to write any of it. Oh, come on, Mormon, give us a little more of that. Isn't that worth some of the 100th part? I wish we knew more. Nephi ministers with power and great authority. And verse 18, as to be expected, they were angry with him. But here's why. Number one, because he had greater power than they. We keep talking about rival authority. Well, he has more power because his is the power of righteousness. And even more frustrating for them, I'm sure, it were not possible that they could disbelieve his words. For so great was his faith on the Lord Jesus Christ that angels did minister unto him daily. His faith was so unshakable that it even bled into their disbelief. It's like, ugh! Not only does he have more power that others will believe in his words instead of ours, I find myself believing in his words too. I can't disbelieve. Remember, that's what signs were for. Remember, that's what we saw at the beginning in 3 Nephi 1. The truth was so obvious that knowledge was there. Faith wasn't even required anymore. These people could not disbelieve his words. Can we teach with that much power, that much conviction? Can we testify that boldly through our faith on the Lord Jesus Christ to the point that people believe us in spite of themselves? Unable to deny that we know, but not wanting to admit that they know too. Verse 19, this incredible, mighty prophet Nephi, in the name of Jesus, casts out devils and unclean spirits. He raises his brother from the dead after he'd been stoned and suffered death by the people. This is even more miraculous than Samuel the Lamanite, who couldn't be touched by the stones and arrows. Well, Nephi's brother was touched by those stones. He was killed by them. And yet, even after the fact, you can't stop the prophet. This reminds me of the book of Revelation that speaks of two prophets being slain in Jerusalem and their bodies being left in the streets, but three and a half days later, rising again. Opposition to the Lord's authorized representatives will never be permanently successful. Kill Nephi's brother. Nephi will bring him back. The world's darkness only makes their light that much more brilliant. Opposition and persecution only seems to fan the flames of faith for these great men. Verse 20, when the people saw that, the raising of Nephi's brother from the dead, they witnessed it, but they were angry with him because of his power. 
This is like the people in Jerusalem mad that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and trying to plot his second death to try to keep faith from spreading. He also did do many more miracles in the sight of the people and always in the name of Jesus. Now in 21, the bad news is that converts were few, low in quantity, but high in quality. For as many as were converted did truly signify unto the people that they had been visited by the power and spirit of God, which was in Jesus Christ, in whom they believed. Those believers had the devils cast out from them. Those believers were healed of their sicknesses and infirmities. Those believers did truly manifest unto the people that they had been wrought upon by the Spirit of God. Good can be done even in days of darkness. Nephi is such a great example of that. In 23, he continues to preach repentance and remission of sins. In 24, he continues to baptize those who accept that invitation and repent. 25, he ordains others unto that same ministry to continue to baptize people as a witness and testimony before God that they had repented and received a remission of their sins. I love that this chapter ends with repentance and baptism being fused together inseparably because it's not enough to change repentance. We need to stay changed, baptism. We need to covenant. It's our only hope in facing the wickedness that is all around us. Next week, we will see the results of this polarization. We will see the wicked destroyed and the righteous there in the land bountiful as the Lord Jesus Christ descends. Are we preparing ourselves for that day? Are we exercising faith in the redemption of Jesus Christ? Are we repenting of our sins? Are we committing, covenanting to that lifestyle and seeking confirmation, living worthy of the Holy Ghost, telling us that the object of our faith is exactly what it ought to be? Jesus lives. He came. And the signs of his second coming will all be fulfilled. To these Nephite disciples, and to my fellow disciples today, Bethlehem, 3 Nephi 1, lies behind, but bountiful lies ahead. May we be prepared to receive him when he comes.